You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his own lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouth shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The word of the Lord. The Buffalo Bills trailed the Houston Oilers by an insurmountable deficit of 3-35 to in the third quarter of an NFL playoff game. Frustrated Bills fans began to boo and file out of the stadium, believing the game was decided. Adding insult to injury, the Bills' starting quarterback, all-pro Jim Kelly, was hurt with a knee injury in the first half and was replaced by journeyman quarterback Frank Reich, who now is the coach of the Indianapolis Colts. The only collegiate claim to fame for Frank Reich was as the starting quarterback at the University of Maryland, he happened to lead the biggest comeback in NCAA history at the time. Maryland came back to defeat the University of Miami after a 31-point deficit. Bill's coach, Marv Levy, didn't know if they would overcome the 35-3 deficit, but he knew they would go down fighting to the end. At halftime, he told his, his team this, I don't know if we're going to come back and win, but I'll say this. When it's over, don't let anybody say you quit. Then ominously, on the first play of the second half, Reich threw a pick six. It was tipped by a defensive lineman. Safety intercepted it, ran it back for a touchdown. But then began the improbable, slow, steady, one-play-at-a-time historic comeback by the gritty Buffalo Bills. When fans who had left the station... Uh, the stadium turned on their, their radios in their cars and heard that at the end of regulation, it was tied. They got back out of their cars, went to the gates, wanted to get back in the stadium. They weren't allowed to, so they began to scale the fences to get back in. In overtime, this half-filled stadium of delirious Buffalo Bills fans watched in disbelief as Bills kicker Steve Christie hit a game-winning 32-yard field goal to seal a 41-38 Bills comeback victory. My point in telling this story, other than for the Bills fans, are there any Bills fans here this, this morning? None. There was one lady in the first, and she looked like she, she, she said, man, it's been great going to church, and she left right there. She was so happy. No matter the circumstance, 
No matter the adversity, no matter how much time you think is left on whatever the clock is in your head, finish well. Run hard all the way to the finish line. Yankee Hall of Fame catcher Yogi Berra said it this way, and I agree, it ain't over till it's over. Life is filled with endings, isn't it? We move from one city or one home to another neighborhood or another city. We graduate from high school, go away to college, and many times don't go back to our hometown. We serve in the military for a season. The last kid mercifully moves out of the basement. Praise be to God. <laughs> Marriages end. And then ultimately and inevitably, we all face the end of our lives. The lesson from Daniel chapter 6 this morning is finish well. It doesn't matter if, if you've coached or played sports. It doesn't matter what the, 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 the score is at halftime. What matters is the score at the end of the game. Coach Levy was correct. Don't let anyone say you quit. The last three weeks, we've studied the historical account of the life of four teenage Hebrew uh, young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They had experienced the trauma of seeing their hometown under siege and then overrun and conquered, and the vast majority of people killed, including their friends and relatives. And then they were taken 1,700 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon in chains as prisoners of war. They had to live in a culture opposed to their Jewish monotheistic beliefs, and they faced racism, we've seen many times here in the book of Daniel, as despised Jews. Then they lived through the, the Median Persian Empire coming, laying siege to Babylon and overcoming the Babylon Empire. Now here in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is no longer a teenager. He's 83 years old. We know from Persian historical records that Darius the Mede, also known as Cyrus the Persian, conquered Babylon on October 11th, uh, 539 BC. So Daniel served under this king, this Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian, and had earned his respect and his goodwill. King Darius was his Mede name. His mother was a Mede, and he had a Persian father, so he had a Persian name by the name of Cyrus, the same person. King Cyrus inherited a corrupt Babylonian empire. You remember the night that, that Babylon was, was conquered, that the king and, and all of his leaders were uh, stone-cold drunk, just showing the, the incredible... Uh, corruption that was in Babylon, and so King Cyrus desperately needed leaders he could trust, leaders who could administrate his, his empire, who would be honest and also competent. Like business owners today, Cyrus's biggest uh, problem was finding good help, and he found it in 80-year-old Daniel. So how did Daniel earn King Darius Cyrus's respect and trust? Biblical scholars believe that Daniel had shown King Cyrus Isaiah 44 from the Hebrew scriptures which prophesied, and I quote, who says to Cyrus, who is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This blew Darius Cyrus away because Isaiah lived over a hundred years before Cyrus was born. We know that Cyrus was born in 620 B.C., which was the same year that Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's 
vision. Remember two weeks ago, the vision he had of a statue, it had a gold head, silver, and then bronze, and then iron, and then feet, iron mixed with, with clay, and then a stone uncut by human hands, meaning it doesn't have human origin, crushed the statue. And you remember that we saw that that had to do with the head of gold being Babylon and then the silver being the Medo-Persian Empire, the bronze being the Greek Empire, the iron uh, being the, the Roman Empire, and how God was, was uh, prophesying through Daniel what was going to take place in history for 600 years, and it was going to be superseded by a kingdom that would never end, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The very year that Daniel, as a teenager, was interpreting that dream was the very year that a Mede woman and a Persian man had a son who grew up and fulfilled the first part of that prophecy. And so in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, Cyrus Darius was reading a Hebrew prophecy he could easily verify and date as written around 720 B.C., 100 years before he was born, 160 years before he conquered Babylon. And so Daniel, because of this, had huge credibility with King Cyrus. In fact, Cyrus, to fight corruption in Babylon, was planning on making Daniel the senior leading administrator of the entire empire on behalf of, of himself, the king. Daniel would serve the king akin to a prime minister, the existing organizational chart for the kingdom of Medo-Persia was that there was three leaders, of which Daniel was one, with 120 governors underneath them. The new corporate rollout, so to speak, was Daniel as CEO and Cyrus as board chair. That didn't sit well with the other two leaders in the 120 Persian and Babylonian leaders, and so they were jealous, so they looked for a valid reason to discredit Daniel and destroy him in Cyrus's eyes, but they couldn't find anything. He didn't lie, he didn't cheat, he didn't steal, he worked hard. He didn't do anything illegal, immoral, or unethical. But it's amazing the huge capacity that evil men have for plotting against their enemies, and that's exactly what they did. You can see down in verse 10, it's page 883 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he uh, had his windows in the upper chamber and open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. They had said, there has to be, we have to find him, and so we're going to have a law of the Medes and Persians that no one can uh, uh, pray to anyone other than you, O king, for 30 days. And Daniel heard about it. What did he do? He went back and he did what he always had done. Since he was a young man, he prayed to God. This trap was set by his jealous colleagues and then it slammed shut when Daniel went home and did exactly what they knew he would do, which was pray with his windows open toward Jerusalem. And so smugly, his unscrupulous, uh, jealous colleagues went to the king and ratted out Daniel. Looks down at verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition, plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? 
The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. This is a very interesting, important development in human history that we read about right here. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, their form of government was absolute monarchy. But the Medo-Persian Empire that we read about here under King Darius Cyrus had a constitutional monarchy. Huge difference. In other words, with an absolute monarchy, King Nebuchadnezzar could do anything that he wanted to do. He had ultimate power, unchecked. But King Darius Cyrus had to obey the law of the Medes and Persians. He was under the rule of law. This development that we read about here has had far-reaching consequences in the development of governments, especially Western governments, to this day. So here in this scripture, we're seeing a king have to obey the rule of law rather than be a tyrant like King Nebuchadnezzar. The rule of law, where no one is above the law, is a blessing to a nature. So King Darius Cyrus, when all of a sudden he found out that the implication, which had never entered his mind, that his most trusted advisor was going to have to be killed, he was devastated. He genuinely respected and appreciated Daniel as his most trusted advisor. Now he found he was tricked into signing his death certificate and he was sick to his stomach. And so that it said that he went home, he didn't have any entertainment, which kings always had. He couldn't sleep that night, was just worried sick on what would happen to Daniel. And Daniel found himself in a situation which legitimized civil disobedience. Daniel was a model citizen whom King Darius could trust uh, 100% with overseeing the vast wealth of the Medo-Persian Empire. But when Darius Cyrus signed a law making it illegal for Daniel to pray to the eternal creator, king of the universe, Daniel had to disobey man's law in order to obey God's law. The Bible is clear especially in Romans chapter 13, that followers of Jesus should be law-abiding citizens. We should never steal or harm our neighbor. We should be respectful to the authorities, including the police, pay our taxes, obey the law. Unless human law contradicts God's law, then we must at that point consider, is it God's will for us to have civil disobedience like Daniel? But make no mistake, Daniel's civil disobedience had consequences, and Daniel was thrown into the Persians' lion den. An ancient lion's den was basically a cavern. It would have an opening, and that's why they said they would throw them in. It usually had a wall down the middle, and, and so they could get the lions on one side, have the wall down there, so the lion keepers could clean up uh, the other half of it without being eaten, and then they could move it and the lions could move over. And Daniel was thrown into this. It's part of what we know from historical records outside of the Bible was a common practice in this day. The lions were deprived of sufficient food. So when a human was tossed into the lion's den, they were ravenously hungry and they would fall upon their human hapless prey. Daniel had been faithful to God as a teen, and now as an 83-year-old man, he continues to be faithful to the Lord, and he finishes well. In verses 21 through 24, we see that, that the, the king says, Daniel, are you okay? And Daniel said, I'm, I'm innocent before God, and I'm innocent before you, and the Lord closed the mouth of the lions, and I am okay. And, and Darius Cyrus was overjoyed at this news. 
Well, let's apply for a few moments before we go into communion lessons from Daniel's life on how to finish well from this 83-year-old man. Are you facing your, your senior year in either high school or college and, and already you're feeling senioritis? Daniel would say finish well. Do you know that you'll be transitioning your job in three months or in six months? Daniel would say finish well. Are there fewer years out the windshield than there are that have gone through the rearview mirror for your life, Daniel would say, finish well. Daniel stands in a line of esteemed senior citizens in the Bible who finished well. Let me just give you two quick examples. In Joshua 14, 85-year-old Caleb asked permission to conquer the foothills. Anyone who has a military background knows that whoever holds the high ground holds a strategic advantage and so he was going to have to fight uphill, 85 years of age. But he said, would you give me this? And they said, sure. And so Caleb and his guys went and they got it done, even though he was 85 years old. That inspires me. I look like I'm 85, but I'm not there yet. And so, you know, when I get there, that's who I want to be. Then in Deuteronomy 34, 7, it says about Moses, I love this scripture. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Listen to this. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Boy, what an epitaph that would be for a person. In other words, Moses was old in body, but he was young in his mind and his spirit. Notice that Daniel, Caleb, and Moses all continued to make significant contributions into their senior years. They continued to advance God's mission, even though they were elderly. They finished well. How did they do that? Three quick lessons. First of all, they all had grit. What is grit? Grit is this rare alchemy of courage and endurance and wisdom and resilience and tenacity. Grit don't quit. The Bible has a lot to say about grit. Galatians 6, 9 says this, and let us know not grow weary of doing the right thing, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Hebrews 10, 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what God has promised. Romans 2, 7 says this, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. To finish well, like Daniel, we need grit, we need to straighten our, our aching shoulders. We need to stand back up on our swollen feet and keep taking the next step as long as the race goes on to do our duty, to be faithful to our commitments and our responsibilities, to give it our best to the end. If you've never read or watched the movie uh, about Sir Ernest Shackleton's quest to the Antarctic in his ship Endurance, you're missing a, a treat, and here's what the front of the book looks like, and, and go read it or watch the movie. December 1914, Shackleton and his 27-man crew set off from Britain to Antarctic, and they were only 100 miles from their, tar from their target, from their goal, when the Endurance was surrounded and encapsulated in ice. So they started to wait for the ice to break up, and they lived on the ship, this tiny ship, for 10 months. The ice never broke up. 
So finally they decided that they were going to have to rescue themselves and they, they set out on this harrowing march, hundreds of miles, dragging these, these three um, 20-foot lifeboats along with them and they finally made it to Elephant Island where the only thing they had to eat was seal. The prospect of a ship, a whaling ship, coming by this obscure little tiny island was, was not great. And, and so they decided, Shackleton and four of his comrades decided they were going to set in a lifeboat and try to get to the South Georgia Island, which was 800 miles away, across the rough seas, in the southern part of our world. And uh, in this 20-foot lifeboat that they had. It, it would be like trying to sail from here to St. Louis, 800 miles. And so eventually they made it, but when they got there, again, their grit was being taken to the nth degree because they landed on the wrong side of the island. The whaling station was on the other side of this mountainous island. So Shackleton and two of his men set out to climb over the island's treacherous, icy cliffs with all this crevasses and so forth. Miraculously, Shackleton and his two guys made the crossing to the whaling station in 36 hours of hiking. It's interesting then to note in Shackleton's diary, this is what he said about his mountain climbing experience, and I quote, I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that there were four, not three, I said nothing to my companions, but afterwards, Worsley said to me, Boss, I had a curious feeling that there was another person with us. I share that because Shackleton's experience brings grit together with the second lesson that we see in Daniel's life and how to end well, and Daniel had grace. What is grace? Grace is God's presence. It's God's help. It's God's favor. It's his guidance to his beloved child. Daniel was not eaten by the lions because of God's grace. Daniel was able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream by grace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had the fourth person, Jesus, in the fiery furnace with them because of God's grace. Friends, to finish well, to heal from past trauma, to navigate present trauma, or to prepare for potential trauma, we need God's grace. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Isaiah 40.31 says this, But those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. John 1.16 says this, From the fullness, from the overflow of God's abundant grace, we have all received one blessing after another. The ultimate finish line for us is death, isn't it? To finish this life well, to step into eternity and a rich reward there, the Bible is clear that we need God's grace. Eternal life is a gift of grace that we don't deserve and we haven't earned, but it's given to us out of God's love and mercy poured out for us in Jesus' death and resurrection. To finish well, we must lean into God's grace. It would seem at first glance that, that great and uh, grit and grace uh, are polar opposites, that, that they're contradictory. One has to do with us 
deciding to get up and do our best. And, and even when we're tired and maybe discouraged and maybe feeling a bit hopeless, and then grace is about God's un, unearned, undeserved favor and, and help to us. But this comes together, grit and grace comes together in the third and final application from Daniel's life on how to finish well, that Daniel was a man of prayer. For the past four Sundays, as we've looked at the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel, we've seen time and again in the book of Daniel descriptions of Daniel going to God in prayer time and time again. Daniel thanked God in prayer. He worshiped God in prayer. He sought fellowship with, with God in prayer. He brought before the Lord his problems and his burdens. He prayed for his people, the Jews. He prayed for the king in prayer. Three times a day, the scripture tells us here in Daniel chapter 6, he would bow, he would get on his knees, and he would pray. As an aside, one of the things that uh, found back when I was pastoring uh, our board, is when we would face what we thought were big problems that, that seemed insurmountable, we didn't have the answer for it, we started a tradition that was very meaningful to us. Just in our board meeting, we'd literally get down on our knees and we'd pray. We began to see God do amazing things time and again. It's not magical getting on your knees, but it's a, a place of humility. It's a place of saying, I'm not leaning on my own understanding, on what a great leader I am, how intelligent I am, how strong I am, what our budget is like, how big our building is. No, none of these things. When you get down on your knees, you're saying, Lord, I am small and you are big. And I encourage you at times privately to get down on your knees with a humble spirit. If you do it just perfunctorily, you know, you might as well not even do it. But if you do it in sincerity of heart, it's amazing what God can do. You see, in prayer, Daniel found fresh fuel for his grit. From prayer, Daniel tapped into God's grace upon his life. Never underestimate the power of prayer. Even Jesus, very God of very God, our Lord and Savior, was a man of prayer. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a lonely place, where he prayed. Grid is renewed and grace flows as we consistently, sincerely, humbly seek connection with the king of the universe in prayer. I was in the LA Coliseum with 75,000 other men for the Promise Keepers Conference in 1995. Very vivid memory. Sitting on my right-hand side is my brother-in-law, Randy, who at that point was a lieutenant in the LAPD. Sitting on my left was Randy's father, Jim. Jim had been an active al alcoholic, Randy's growing up years, and, and it led to the police coming and having to intervene. To, won't go into details, but it's one of the reasons Randy became a police officer, and uh, his mom and dad got divorced, and so Randy really didn't want anything to do with Jim. And, and the speaker uh, there that day was a legendary uh, pastor, um, E.V. Hill, pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in L.A., a fabulous preacher. During the Depression, Pastor Hill's mother had five children, and she didn't have enough food for all of them. And so uh, she sent four-year-old E.V. to live with a friend in a small country town called Sweet Home. 
Evie's mama had great hopes for her son. She saw something special there, and so she made sure that he graduated from high school. The year he graduated from Sweet Home High School, he was in a graduating class of one. She then insisted that he go to college. So mama took her son Evie to the bus station, handed him a ticket, $5, and said, now go off to Prairie View College and... Uh, and make me proud and remember that mama is always praying for you. Evie arrived on campus and just had a dollar ninety left in his pocket. He found out that he needed $80 in cash in order to register. Here's how he described his experience. I quote, I got in line and the devil told me to get out of line. But I heard my mama saying in my ear, I'll be praying for you. I stood in line on mama's prayer. There was another new student ahead of me, and I began to be nervous, but I stayed in line. Just about the time the student in front of me got all her stuff and turned away, Dr. Drew touched me on the shoulder and said, are you Ed Hill? I said, yes. Are you Ed Hill from Sweet Home? Yes. Have you paid yet? Not quite. <laughs> We've been looking for you all morning, Dr. Drew said. I said, well, what do you want with me? We have a four-year scholarship that will pay your room, board, tuition, and give you $30 a month. And I heard Mama say, I will be praying for you. That sunny Southern California day in the L.A. Coliseum, Evie Hill was preaching on reconciliation between fathers and sons. I kid you not. When he finished preaching, Randy said, hey, uh, can we switch places? So I went to that seat. He came here. His dad, Jim, was right there. And I heard Randy. I was, I was right next to him. I'll never forget it. Uh, Randy and Colleen's sister, Kathy, live in Littleton today. And I heard uh, Jim ask his son's forgiveness. And I heard Randy tell his his dad, that he forgave him. And they embraced and they were reconciled. Eight years later, I did Jim's funeral service. And I fully expect to see Jim in the Lord's presence someday. Mama prayed that God would miraculously provide for her youngest, Ed, E.V., so he could fulfill his potential and go to college. And God answered that prayer. But when God answered that prayer, God was also answering thousands of other prayers, including prayers for reconciliation between a father and a son. You see, our limitless God, the king of the universe, is playing chess when we see things as just checkers. Never underestimate the power of prayer. And do not give up. Six times in the book of Revelation, it says, to him who overcomes, I will give different blessings. We worship a good and great God whose banner over us is love. We sang about it this morning, unfailing love, never-ending love, perfect love. And so I encourage us now to draw near to this God that loves you and wants to help you finish well to draw near to him in faith in his son Jesus. Amen.